a real conversation and some hard truths. Gangs, drugs, and guns, giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. Hey everybody, Nathan Romas with you again. Today we're going to be going to the other side of the world and we're going to talk a little bit about Africa. And Canada has seen a large influx of immigrants from the continent. So what better time to learn about our friends than the present? Uh, and today I've got an expert on here to talk about this. We're going to learn a little bit about Africa, some of its struggles, what it has to offer, and some solutions. So for that, I have Fidel Owusu on the program. Fidel is an international relations and security analyst from the Republic of Ghana. He's also a freelance writer on defense and politics with a focus on international and regional security, terrorism, and comparative politics. Fidel has worked as a government-appointed special assistant to a former vice president of Ghana for two years and was also a research assistant and later personal assistant to the office of the president of Ghana from 2013 to 2017. Fidel now works as an associate and senior conflict analyst with the Conflict Research Consortium for Africa. Here, he analyzes conflict situations across the continent and profiles the different actors. So I think I got all of that right. The guy's got a lot of stuff. <laughs> so welcome. Of course, of course. Uh, that, that was perfectly right. Uh, thank you very much, sir. Um, yeah, we, we had a little bit of a chat before this. I, I'm actually uh, very excited to get you on here. And I'll post a link to your LinkedIn when we get the episode up. But you put out uh, the most amazing information and the pictures that go along with it and all the charts and graphs and uh, Atlas pictures. And uh, I mean, you're getting information across in multiple ways. It's some amazing stuff. Uh, who makes the graphics for you or do you do them? Uh, right. Thank you very much for this opportunity. I first of all like to greet your cherished listeners yeah. and yourself. Um, um, I have been active on LinkedIn um, since last year. I've been on LinkedIn mm. for several years, but I have been very active since last year. And uh, I discovered that not so many people would like to reach so much. <laughs> yeah. So um, I try to compress my ideas as best as I can, put them in um, numbered paragraphs, mm -hmm. and then um, add uh, pictorial depictions and um, images that makes it very succinct and attractive to the reader. Yeah. Now, uh, mostly I put maps and infographs um, that uh, when the person sees, perhaps will draw the attention to let the person read, open, and then read the text as well. So sometimes it's actually the image that makes people read yes. the, the, the text. Yes. Yeah. And then other times people read the text and see the image and then it's augment, they augment each other. Mm -hmm. in order for the person to really understand um, where I'm going with it and how I'll get responses from them. Um, the images, um, I really get them through um, open source intelligence. Um, I, I go to the net, I read a lot, mm -hmm. and then I find um, soothing and uh, matching images to my ideas. So basically, when I wake up in the morning, I think about my continent, Africa, Yeah. Um, a continent of about about uh, 54 countries. 
And I like to, um, that there are a lot of problems that need to be communicated because uh, we cannot do it alone. We need people from outside the continent as well to help. And then when you communicate that way, people get to understand what is actually happening. And then when the help is coming, it can be well targeted mm-hmm. and well designed to suit the situation. Hey, it's, it's awesome work that you're putting out. I've actually had a few other friends here that I didn't even know followed your work. And then when I said you were going to be on the show, uh, they were super excited. So they love your work too. Um, but maybe we'll kind of start with you and talk a little about uh, where you come from, family, uh, and, and how you got into the world that you're in. So can you kind of start us at the beginning of where mm. you come from? Mm. Yes, uh, my hometown uh, is called Abra Kodwija. Abra Kodwija is a small town with not more than 2,000 people. And um, it, uh, that's where I was born. Uh, my father was a teacher. Uh, and then uh, my mom did some basic, I mean, business here and there. They selling clothes here and there. That did a number of businesses mm-hmm. um, while um, they were raising us. Um, while in primary school, uh, around the age of twelve or eleven, my dad passed away. That is, uh, he kicked the bucket, and that meant that my mom had to handle us single-handedly. And we are we are seven of us. Wow. So uh, my mom really got to work and then he did she did very well for us um one advantage we had was that uh, we belonged to the local royal family mm. that is in africa so we are landowners and so um and and by landowners it, it doesn't um, mean we own um huge tracts of land but then we didn't have to buy land or be struggling for land mm-hmm. So my father acquired some, and then my mother was entitled. And um, where I come from, we we inherit properties from the mother's side. Oh, really? Traditionally. Okay. Yes. So we are matrilineal. So uh, my father actually lived my mother's hometown. And so everything was within there. And naturally, you inherit from the mother's side. So, I mean, properties with the, um, with the, with the women. That's what happens, you know, in where I come from. Mm-hmm. And so it's really served as well when my dad passed away and my mom had to do it alone because I mean properties so had to be with 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 her. So that 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 was very important for us. And then it's something I value to this day. And um from there, however, even though we were raised in a rural community, I schooled in Accra, the capital of Ghana, because Right from the beginning, my father saw the need to let us start school in Accra. So I was in a boarding house, and then whenever uh, we vacated or there was a break, I went back to the village. So we helped with farming and things like that. Yeah. And I mean, all that, yeah. And my other siblings, my younger siblings were also in Accra. So we it, it was like that. We, ca- we came to school, and then we went back home whenever... We, we had a break. And from there, uh, basic school, I went to um, Adesadel College. Adesadel College is one of the colonial schools that were built um, in Gold Coast, in the Gold Coast, former Gold Coast, now Ghana. Okay. Ghana used to be called the Gold Coast. Yes. And uh, it was built by the, by the Anglican Church um, in Cape Coast. That is a colonial um, town, Cape Coast. That used to be the first capital of the Gold Coast before it was moved to Accra. So that's where I had my secondary or high school education. 
And from there, I moved to the University of Ghana. That is Ghana's premier university university in, in Accra. And it's one of the best in West Africa and Africa. And so uh, with a time ranking of universities, we've been, the school has been doing well there. Mm-hmm. So over there, I read political science with history. And I loved it so much. And, and fortunately for me, I had a, I had a first class in, in, in history with political science. And then from there, I decided to pursue my master's in international affairs and diplomacy mm-hmm. in the same school. So basically all my schooling has been in Ghana and in Africa. So, 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 so my, my so much interest in Africa as a result of that, it's as a result of that because uh, much of my time has been spent here. I've not, I've never lived anywhere apart from Africa. Mm-hmm. And, um, even before I started my, um, masters, I had an opportunity to work at the office of the president of the Republic of Ghana as, uh, a research assistant. And that was a very challenging role or a challenging period in my time because then, you know, African politics, you wouldn't get it so rosy. Mm-hmm. You work, but then there are a lot of challenges, you know, elbowing here and there, all that. But it was good. It was a good experience. And um, fortunately for me, at the latter part of the administration, I had the opportunity to be promoted to special assistant. And then uh, when we leave in office, as part of the staff or of the national arrangements for the vice former vice president, I was made um, his special assistant, paid by the states. And that is the position of like uh, a deputy minister, something of the sort is a deputy minister okay. in Ghana. Yeah. yeah. So um, I handled the, the, the gentleman's um, office as a head of his office, um, lays between the presidency of the new administration and the office until, unfortunately, he passed in an accident while he was on a treadmill. I think um, he, he, he flipped up and, and then he slipped and then, and then fell. Oh, really? And he, he passed. Yes, wow. yes. That was in 2018. And then when you go to the net, you see that the uh, vice president of Ghana, um, I mean, uh, and perishes or dies and, yeah. and is there. And uh, yeah. And, and, and then from then, I had to, I mean, I was on my own now to find a new path. And already international affairs and diplomacy, international security has been my passion. And even while I was in the office of the president, uh, uh, 2016, at the latter part, I had started appearing on the national broadcaster, Ghana Broadcasting Corporation, mm-hmm. and talking about international affairs and diplomacy. And so um, I was actually a guest there for several years. Uh, later when my boss passed and then, um, after a, a couple of years, I was made a host of that program. Um, and that was temporary because then the regular host had moved on to be a lecturer in a, one of the universities in Ghana. Mm-hmm. And so I was made to sit in for two years, which I did. And I think that I did very well. We did some transformational changes on the show. Uh, for instance, um, the call-ins, text messages, other things, uh, the background of the show, I mean, the physical background and everything. We, together with the production team, we made some changes and until such time that I had to leave mm-hmm. or I left. And now I'm very much committed to conflict studies and research. And so somewhere last year, I joined the CRCA, mm-hmm. the uh, Conflict Research and uh, Consortium for Africa. 
And um, within some months, I was made a senior analyst and um, I've been engaging in training people. Last year, or no, beginning of this year, I trained about 120 people from all over the world. Um, some from France, Canada, US, everywhere. And it was virtual, actually. And it was very impressive. I trained them on the basics in African analysis, African conflict analysis in Africa. Okay. And it was very much of it was a free program that was then uh, where certificates were issued. And mm. the turnout and the feedback we got was very good. Currently, currently, I am starting um, a, a, consult, a, a consultancy or a consulting firm mm-hmm. um, that is profit making and um, uh, on Africa. Businesses wanting to come to Africa, NGOs, agencies, we would like to give them security and political risk analysis, okay. as well as your political risk analysis, business advisory support, and all that. And I'm doing it with a very big team mm-hmm. because it's a tax base, sometimes a startup, but it's tax base, and we are trying to help people who want to engage in African firms that are already in Africa. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, man, you're a busy guy. Well, especially if there's over 50 countries in Africa. I mean, you got to know about well, 50 different situations. Like that's that's quite the task to to take on. So this company that you're you're going to be looking at doing here or that you're running, um, so you'll be able to cover all of Africa and anybody looking to do business somewhere in the continent can basically reach out to you and and get some advice. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one thing that I found I find profound. You know. Technology has made a lot of things possible. Mm-hmm. As a village boy, uh, reaching the world would have been very difficult. You have you had to travel and travel and travel to meet a lot of people yeah. or write a lot of letters in order to get in contact with people. With LinkedIn, as you see me, very, very, very present there, I have a lot of contact across the continent. Yeah. Currently, I'm moving towards uh, 15,000 followers. And so um, that, is, that, is, that is good. And uh, many of them are Africans. And I have had a lot of connections. I've spoken to a lot of them who are in full-time um, engagement but would like to work part-time for the, for the, for the firm. So okay. that because we want tangible, tangible uh, facts mm-hmm. for our clients. So if, we, if a client wants to go to Gabon to deal in timber, which they have a lot because Gabon is in a, falls in the tropical zone in Central Africa. And so what we do is that we get our representatives in Gabon to help us with the fact while we do the research, uh, open source intelligence and other things, we put uh, all the facts together and then we seek the, 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 the support of our representative there mm-hmm. for other verifications. Again, if the business wants to come down to Africa in person, a representative of the business wants to come in person, the person must be met uh, by someone and our representative will be there to do that. Maybe I would have to join, but then before... I will join. There will be someone there to welcome you and then help you through some of the processes because, uh, you know, the bureaucracy in Africa is also very huge and complex. Yeah. And so uh, businesses coming in and agencies coming in, we need that support. And we are willing to grant that in a more uh, uh, principled way with integrity, professionalism, and reliability. We wish to provide such services in, in, the, in the very, very near future. Yeah, so that that makes sense. Like you have somebody on the ground doing groundwork, right? They can go and talk to people directly, confirm facts, uh, and then you're doing the overarching 
the geopolitical uh, kind of big scale things. So you have people working at all levels of the, the spectrum, make sure your facts are good and then people can get the help they need from you. So the interesting business that sounds like a lot of work. Yeah. Um, one thing I was wondering that you were kind of talking about was, uh, so when you're growing up as a kid in Ghana uh, and, and then you're eventually going to school there, are politics a large part of a kid's life? So, and, and the reason I ask that is because it seems like everywhere outside of North America that ever makes the news here, you see kids, at, a lot more kids at rallies or uh, protests or whatever's going on. So it's almost like ingrained in the culture right from day one. Uh, you come to North America and kids are just on their phones all day. So who knows what they're looking at? So is, is that a big thing in Africa? Is that a big part of the culture? Mm. Um because of colonialism, um, there was so much division in Africa after independence. Mm, okay. Because um, during colonialism, um, Europeans generally uh, supported one ethnic group against the other or made one ethnic group powerful against the other. Mm. So after independence, people found the need to form political parties along ethnic lines, mostly. Mm. Now, Ghana is one of the fortunate countries where the politics on ethnic lines is not so much acute or it's not so much pronounced. And so um, you find more of ideology playing out after independence than ethnicity, mm. even though we had some ethnicity happening. Now, when I was growing up, my father was um, a member of the party, the ruling party, the NDC, the National Democratic Congress. That is now the major opposition party in Ghana. Now, uh, my father was a cadre of that party. And so growing up, uh, my father would be reading the newspapers and I saw all the ministers and then he kind of made me memorize the names of ministers. He was so much interested in making me do that. So this is called that, that person is called that, he's a Greek minister, that person is an interior minister. And so I, I, from the beginning, I was very more of a precocious child because I, I, I was very current and from so basic school through High school, my friends knew that I was interested in current affairs. Okay. Um, because in high school, I did business. But in class, I don't talk about business. I talk about politics. I talk about um, international relations. I talk about um, geography. Mm. So when in, actually, I have two certificates uh, for my high school. I have a business and I privately registered for arts. That is the artist where we do the, the, that is the humanities. I registered in, in, in privately. And I wrote and I passed. Nobody, no one taught me that. I, I just, because of my interest in the humanities, I just did that. And mm. humbly, I was able to perform very well in that, my private um, papers. And so um, politics is very much important in Africa. And from us, like, I mean, in my case, it was more psychological. I mean, growing up, I saw my father doing that. And so even though my father passed very early in my life, passed on very early in my life, I ended up in office of the president when the NDC was back in office. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it wasn't there, but I mean, that, that, that attraction and that, I mean, movement, because I didn't see myself being, um, my hands being held by any particular person, even though I had met people along the way to get to the office. It wasn't that uh, specific person who really put me there, but um, a political activism and things of the sort that, yeah. that, that really helped. Well, that's awesome. I mean, your dad still had a, quite an impact on your life then, even in the short amount of years that you're saying 
that you got to spend with him, right? Still had a pretty, uh, maybe an impact on the direction you took, especially with the knowledge that you're coming in with. Um, you're a little more focused than maybe some of your peers at that time. Um, well, well, uh, I wouldn't say that. My peers, uh, I had a, I had very, very, very um, serious peers. Some mm. of them, but you know, it depends. The, the subjects differed. Uh, some were focused on business, and I have a lot of mates who are very successful now in business. Uh, even some of my siblings are now in business, and they are very, they are doing very good import and export. Um, I have uh, mates who were in um, into agri culture. And they are doing very well. So mm-hmm. it's more about interest. Interest. And as I said, because of my orientation, my interest has always been politics. And um, I have other colleagues who are also in politics, and they are doing very well. Very well. Um, some of them went to law school and now in politics, and they're doing fantastic. Okay. There, there's one gentleman, uh, when I was on, on campus, that is a University of Ghana campus, I used to be on radio station, on the radio, the local radio station with him. I mean, or during debates and the now currently is is one of the most influential people in the country, and so it, it's it's more about interest where the, the the people in in Africa education matters a lot because it's one avenue where your social status can change or you can that can be used to change your whole family uh, trajectory. Yeah, for the standard family and yourself. Because when you when you, when when you came out from a, a, a family and you were able to receive good education, it had I mean a trickle down effect on the other members of the family, being it your nephews, your children, or everybody. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a great deal, and people people really take education seriously here. Well, and one other thing I kind of wanted to ask about too that you were mentioning I didn't know this was uh, inheritance is passed down through the mom's side. So is that a, a common thing just for, is that in Ghana or is that everywhere in Africa? Is it a specific ethnicity that, uh, that follows that practice? Mm. So a uh, majority of Africans are patrilineal, like Europeans. I mean, father, father name, father property, I mean, traditionally. But we have a number of ethnicities. And I am an Akan. And we Akans, we are the uh, dominant group in terms of numbers in, in Ghana, and we are matrilineal, every Akan. So if, you, hmm. if you have, you've heard about the Ashanti kingdom uh, in Ghana, um, that is also one of them. Traditionally, we have, there's a king there uh, who, um, who, who is a traditional leader, and then he inherited that kinship from his uncle. Okay. So traditionally, Traditionally, if 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 I occupy our stool, that is our royal stool in my village, my son cannot be the, the my successor on that stool. That the stool is the, the symbol of office, traditional office. We call it a stool. Mm. So uh, my son cannot be, but my nephew would succeed me. Yeah. Yeah. It does not, it does not take away the legal property. Um, that is your drawing a will for your children. It doesn't take away. It doesn't cancel that. You okay. can decide to write your will for your children. That's fine. But traditionally, yeah. like if you occupy a traditional office, it goes to your nephew and not to your son. Hmm. So, and there are a lot of groups like the Tuareg. As we talk of terrorism, Tuareg will come in. The Tuareg in the Sahel, they're also matrilineal. Um, except that now, because of Islam, they tend to be more patrilineal, but they are traditionally matrilineal. There are a lot of groups in Southern Africa and Central Africa that are also matrilineal. Interesting. Wow. 
And I mean, that's why you have to have people such as yourself and the company you're running to know how to operate in some of these parts of the world. Because yeah, things are different, right? Yeah. Um, maybe with that, we'll kind of move on to talking about Africa geopolitically. Um, maybe we'll start a bit bigger and just talk about, um, if you could start us with, what is Africa's role in the whole grand scheme of things? So when you, you know, people might think of the US uh, or Canada, so when they're talking about North America, it's like, uh, they kind of go and uh, maybe provide humanitarian efforts across the world. They're there to provide security for certain things. Some people say they get involved and shouldn't be involved in a lot of conflicts. But what is Africa's role? Where did they, where does the continent fall in the bigger picture right now? Yeah, as realist, I see that Africa is the underdog of the world. Mm. And um, the issue is this. Um, this is one contiguous continent with 54 sovereign states. Now, all the 54 states were not, they did not evolve by themselves. Very few, except uh, Ethiopia. Mm. All the others had um, external designations or external interference in their evolution. That is, so there was a conference in 1884 and 1885 in Berlin. And I know this one is known by so many people, where Africa, the Africa map was placed on a table in Berlin and it was divided among European powers. Hmm. Now, that division, in, there was no representation from Africa. No African was there to tell them that, look, this group of guys cannot be together with this, group, this other group because uh, they don't really mix up. So it was more about France. This is what France wanted. That was what um, UK wanted or the British wanted. This is what the Germans wanted. And then they divided the continent that way. So you find ethnicity, one ethnicity being divided by colonial lines. Mm. So in West Africa, there is this ethnicity that is in Ghana. It's a major ethnicity in Ghana. They call the Eves. The Eves are found in Ghana. They are found in Togo, in Benin, and in the western fringes of Nigeria. So they are one group of people, but because of colonialism, they are divided in four countries. Okay. So we Africa did not have that. So that really has a lot of implications on the continent. That after independence, mainly in the 50s, 1950s and 60s, the continent has to had to, had to struggle right from the beginning. And that struggle has to do with how these groups, who by no choice of the no choice of theirs, how to be together, how to m come up with something that is workable for them. So in many places, it led, it degenerated. This process is de de degenerated mm -hmm. into war, civil wars, long civil wars, bloody civil wars, yeah. which we still experience on the continent. That said, there are some good news. The good news is that um, growth, there's economic growth in many places on the continent. Even in this post-Russia-Ukraine crisis and economic downturn, Africa is having positive growth. Some are going at 6%. Libya is going at about 16 or so percent, mm -hmm. even with its division. And Ethiopia in East Africa, we have 6 5% growing there. Um, in West Africa, some countries are doing well. Niger and other countries are doing well with their growth rates. And this growth has been the case over the time. But 
Africa in uh, um, in the, in the in the in the in the world. Africa. What is Africa's position now? The location of Africa. The location of Africa. Mm-hmm. Africa is placed right in the imaginary center of the world. So today you are speaking with me, and I'm on the Greenwich uh, Meridian. That is GMT. So I'm right at this. I'm talking to you right from the center of the world. Mm-hmm. But that is zero time zone. And then when you are moving westward, you are losing time. And you are moving eastward, you are gaining hours. So Africa lies on the on the Greenwich Meridian. And also, it also lies on the equator. So when you are drawing the line from the top vertically, it passes through, through Africa. And you are drawing it horizontally, it yeah. passes through Africa. Yeah. So it's right at the center of the world. Now, it is also very close to Europe, only separated by the small, a relatively small Mediterranean Ocean and closer to the Middle East, I mean, West Asia. So the narrow Red Sea separates the Arabian Peninsula from Africa. Now, if you look at West, we have the North America, where you are speaking from, mm-hmm. and then South America. Then you go East, we have Asia, Australia, Australia Far East, and all those places. So Africa, um, geopolitically, that is where its position makes it attract attention. That is first. Two, there are major waterways or maritime traffic yeah. around the continent. And uh, so if you are coming from the Indian Ocean, you use the Red Sea and the Suez Canal in Egypt that connects the Mediterranean with the Red Sea. So goods that are moving from China, Japan, and other places to Europe uses that narrow um, uh, corridor, and that is in African waters. That makes it strategic. Yeah. Now, those who are not using the Red Sea use the Cape of Good Hope in Southern Africa. So the Cape of Good Hope is where the Atlantic Ocean meets the Indian Ocean in Southern Africa. So they use there. So until the Suez Canal was constructed in the 1850s and 60s, it was the, all traffic used the Cape of Good Hope. But by the construction of the Swiss Canal in Egypt in the 19th century, mid 19th century, it meant that traffic that was so much uh, concentrated in the Cape of Good Hope in Southern Africa now had to be using the short corridor. Mm-hmm. All these passes around Africa, it makes Africa strategic. Being in Africa, therefore, is strategic. And so it is not surprising that. Djibouti, a small country that lies adjacent to the Red Sea and the Indian Ocean uh, Gulf, known as the uh, uh, um, um, well, the Indian Ocean Gulf that connects the Indian Ocean to the Red Sea, is having four military bases. It has a base for Italy, oh, really? U.S., France, and China. They all have naval bases there. Mm-hmm. To in order to have control of the maritime traffic at the place. So that small country, a very tiny country, one of the smallest in Africa, hmm. has four military bases from Greek powers. So that's a strategic significance. Again, the country, the continent has the youngest population. Now, that young population, before some decades back, it was not really educated. Now education is improving. It means a pool of labor force. Mm-hmm that is needed in Europe, that is having its labor force depleting because of low fertility rates, 
and aging population. Yeah. So Africa has become a strategic zone. And um, in North America, America has this, uh, US has this lottery system that, I mean, allow a lot of Africans to travel there to work, young Africans. Mm -hmm. In Canada, the immigration in Africa um, um, from, from, from Africa to Canada is very not too cumbersome, even though it's not that easy. But I mean, we have a lot of youth going there. Yeah. Our, my mother's last child and my um, fourth sister is in Canada. Mm -hmm. he, she had her engineering, first degree engineering in Ghana. She had a first class and then had um, Carlton University in Ottawa where she had her master's. Now she's working as an engineer in Canada. Mm -hmm. And so this is what I'm talking about. So, so Africa has that population that the world needs the youngest. Again, this population also means markets for foreign goods. So global powers also need markets in Africa. Mm -hmm. And with the growing population, it means market more consumption. And so global powers want to take or have um, that opportunity uh, uh, by assessing the African market and selling their goods. So businesses are coming in and things of the sort. Again, um, uh, geopolitically or diplomatically, Africa is a single continent that has 54 states. It has more states than any other continent. Mm. Asia is bigger than Africa, but it doesn't have that many states. So if you had the attention of Africa, you are going to get that diplomatic support in international fora like UN and other places. So when the Russia invaded Ukraine, we saw that both Russia, China, and on one side, and then the West have been scrambling for African support, diplomatic support, mm. so that there'll be some condemnation and some votes that will rather endorse or condemn one another. And, and this is what is happening. So diplomatically, it is good. And so both established powers and emerging powers have all turned their attention on Africa or to Africa. So apart from the traditional powers that we know, we also see Turkey, a rising power, Israel. Mm. We see Iran, um, Saudi Arabia, that's the Gulf, and the Gulf states. We see Brazil and other countries also coming to Africa. Within a short time, in about a decade and, and, and a little over a decade, Turkey has more than doubled eight diplomatic missions in Africa. So Turkey is almost everywhere in Africa in terms of diplomacy. Wow. Mostly some countries just um, share uh, missions. For instance, they will position their mission in Accra and that takes care of Cote d'Ivoire and other, about two other countries. But Turkey is not doing any of that. Is building diplomatic missions almost everywhere. Israel is doing something similar. Mm. And so this shows that Africa is indeed um, a continent that is, first of all, an underdog, but has a lot of potential. But I've not spoken about the most important thing, mm -hmm. natural resource endowments. Mm -hmm. And I'm not, this is not to say the natural resource is more important than human resource, but it has been the, the largest magnet that is attracting a lot of powers to Africa. Now, Africa has almost anything you can think about. The rare earth, the hydrocarbons, mm -hmm. 
the precious stones, anything you can think of. In fact, the uh, much of the fuel that fueled the uh, uh, Hiroshima Nagasaki bombs that was made by the atomic bomb, the first atomic bombs in the United States, came from Africa. Oh, really? It came from the Lumbashi region in the DRC. Hmm. And so that region has uranium. We have uranium in Niger. We have uranium in other places. And this is uranium, of course, is a strategic resource because it's fuel for nuclear weapons. When it comes to gold, there's good everywhere you can think about. To the extent that even terrorists are taking advantage of gold deposits. Mm -hmm. um, cobalt in the um, 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 Silicon Valley industries. You talk about um, lithium currently, one of the most sought after uh, 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 minerals in the EV. With all the electric vehicles, yeah. <laughs> of course, yeah. of course. And African countries have a lot of this, or a lot of this. And some of them honest, but even Ghana discovered not long ago that it has it. And I think so there's some deal going on with some Australian companies and all that mm. to, to extract it. Now, apart from that, you talk about oil. Just last month, they found huge deposits of oil in Namibia. Namibia was known for diamonds and other things, but now they found oil too. Angola, currently the number one producer, is, I mean, finding more wells, oil wells, and things of the sort. So resource has become another magnet that is attracting global powers. So if you find Chinese, Russian, the United States, and European powers jostling for the attention in Africa is because of these things. Yeah, so so kind of maybe a little summary here. So you're saying basically there's the numbers uh, of people there, there's a population, they're young, education is growing, and then you also have the natural resources. Uh, do you find that right now with the way things are going basically uh, you went back to, so Africa moved to independence, but now with all this uh, stuff attracting people back into Africa from the West and now from the East, do you see Africa as uh, able to kind of stabilize itself and control some of this influence? Or do you think it, it's kind of where it is right now, it's leading to that division and now you know, whether it's China or Iran or Russia coming from one side and they're basically exploiting a certain area, maybe the West is doing that too. Um, does, does Africa have the ability to control some of this and, and defend itself? Maybe, um, and when I say control, I mean control the resources and uh, own the companies and keep the money in Africa, right? You want to grow things there rather than just having everything siphon out. Yeah. Um, there is, a, unfortunately, um, or fortunately, mm. Africa has experienced this before. What happened? Um, just after their independence or the independence of African states in the 1950s and 1960s, the Cold War started. Or just, I mean, around the same time, the Cold War was, 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 was in full force between the Soviet Union and the West. Now, this was 
basically an ideological competition between the West and the East over communism and liberalism and all that, capitalism and, and, and things like that. However, at a time, because African countries were that young and had not found their feet on the ground, they became pawns mm -hmm. to that ideological warfare. So a lot of proxy wars between the West and the East were fought in Africa. Okay. So in Zimbabwe, we found that happening. In, even in Ghana, the first president who was Dr. Kwame Nkrumah was overthrown as a result of this Cold War politics. We found that war devastating Congo, DRC, mm. the Democratic Republic of Congo. And the ramifications of that, we, we can still feel it to this day. Um, many countries experienced that Ethiopia, Somalia, the current mayhem in Somalia started in the Cold War, during the Cold War. Now, currently, we have moved from the Cold War because the Soviet Union collapsed after the fall of the Berlin Wall. However, we are now faced with a different Cold War on its own. Mm -hmm. Some people would, wouldn't like to call it a new Cold War, but uh, it's, it's beginning to resemble the Cold War. So some of us have no choice but to call it the new Cold War. Mm -hmm. Now, um, we, if you have that experience in the Cold War and how that devastated you, how that suppressed you and how that did not allow you to pursue independent policies, then ideally you would like to learn from that experience and do things better now. Mm. But as it were, uh, people do not always learn from history. Yeah. So we have situations where some countries are asserting their independence and saying that, look, this is where we want to go. Others are not ready to do that. And this has been complicated by the rise of uh, global terrorism and violent extremism. Mm -hmm. And so, unfortunately, African countries, as I stand here, um, majority of them are in a weak position to assert themselves in the face of this jostling for influence in their territories. Do you find, are there certain sections of Africa that are more susceptible to this type of influence? Is it like a North thing? Is it a South? Or is it, is it based on um, religion or ethnicity in the region? Okay. So, um, this is a very good question. In that, we are, we are, we are looking at 54 countries. Mm -hmm. And they are not monolithic. I mean, they all have their own specific and unique ways of doing things. Now, you find out that countries that used to have alliance with the former Soviet Union mm. look like they are more likely to tilt to the Russo-Chinese uh, bloc, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And countries that were neutral at the time were more or less neutral and were pro-West are still are also tilting towards the West. So people are still going to that historical. That is it. Exactly. For instance, Algeria is the largest buyer of Russian arms mm -hmm. because of the history it has with Russia in respect of its independence. Algeria had a very tumultuous independence struggle. Mm. And it was the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union was among the political entities that recognized the country 
at the early stages. Okay. And and so and so it is uh, um, important to 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 note that um, countries will tilt towards the east or west based on their history. That is very important. Mm. Again, again, apart from apart from the history, there's also the case of um, their economic interests. So sometimes they have dealt with one of the great powers or the powers for a long time to the extent that they cannot totally win themselves off the country. Okay. Yes, and so they would like to continue that relationship. Is it just that they're they're kind of comfortable with what they know, so they kind of go back to that? Uh, exactly. You know, they're scared of the new. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And again, sometimes it's political. If the politician or the leaders feel that their political interest is protected by aligning with a particular country, they would rather go for that. So sometimes the alliance leaves the people, the masses, off. Mm. It is just a political relationship between the leaders and the power that is coming in and not the people. So sometimes the people are left behind. So I always say that when you see one country opposed to a power, or a, a global power, it is often um, the government doing that and not the people. Because there are instances where the population like one particular uh, um, government or one particular global power, and the government likes another. Mm-hmm. So it is not always the case that whenever the country is saying one thing, it actually represents the interest of the people. You know, and that's something that we see a lot with... Uh the talk on China right now, you know, there's the communist party and then there's the people of China, uh, two very different worlds, but one's running the show and has all the power. So people just say China in general, but it doesn't mean the people, uh, are always thinking the same thing. Do you see right now, uh, is there a lot of, uh, influence from groups out of China, Iran, Russia, and with that, is the West kind of behind when trying to, um, I don't know if it's influence or at least have a, a positive effect on Africa? Would it be the East group is kind of, um, has more of a hands-on, especially with like, there's the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, and and then wherever it seems like in the news, it always says, once the West leaves or, or the US leaves, um, it seems like China kind of comes in and, and tries to influence something. So. Where do you kind of see China, Iran, or Russia uh, and their influence right now in Africa? Mm, um, it is um, on the up. It's, it is going up. Mm. It, it is climbing. Um, I wouldn't say, um, despite everything that is happening, I see the West being, as of now, still ahead in terms of the number of countries. And I used um, the Ukraine war uh, boots, the boots in the UN. Um, um, General Assembly mm-hmm. on the Russian-Ukraine conflict. I use that as a measure, and you realize that the West seems to still have the numbers. However, when it comes to specifics, because one country has both the West and China within its territory and dealing with both. So if you look at the specific, on the market side and investment side, China was ahead. Oh, really? For Since 2013, China has been ahead in terms of investment, infrastructure development. 
the AU, that is the African Union headquarters, was built by China. Ghana's foreign ministry was built by China. Ghana's defense ministry was built by China. That's the stretches. Wow. And you go to other countries, it's the same. They build, they, 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 they invest in infrastructure, they do that. So their presence is well noted. I mean, it's so clear. However, the United States, in the case of Ghana, the United States seems to have an upper hand. And generally, in terms of policy direction, and if it has to go with taking sides, the U.S. seems to have an upper hand in, 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 in Ghana, or the West in general has an upper hand in Ghana. For instance, not only long ago, our president went as far as condemning a neighboring state of inviting Wagner into its territory, mm, okay. openly in the United States. That was very radical, and I mean, diplomatically. Later, we had to solve that problem. But the fact that he said that in the United States is a clear sign that where Ghana is, is headed, I mean, where we, we, we stand. Other countries, the same. Nigeria, for instance, despite its heavy dealings with China, is ideologically or generally with the United States in terms of policies and then foreign policy and things like that. So um, I would say that much of what is to come will depend on individual countries and how these great powers are able to um, change the dynamics mm -hmm. and their rules on the continent. Recently, after the U.S.-African summit in the uh, uh, latter part of the year, last year, U.S. is speeding up with its investments in Africa. I mean, trying to invest more money in Africa and into more businesses. Uh, recently, the, the Vice President Kamala Harris mm -hmm. was around. And um, when she came, she said a lot of things that showed that they are willing to help. Um, she gave $100 million uh, to support the fight against terrorism and other investment uh, um, packages that were announced. So this this to show that the U.S. or the West has recognized that they are beginning to fall behind and they are trying to um, take a second look at what is happening to be back on track. Again, the Chinese are not relaxing. But there's one issue, what we call the debt trap, mm. where China seems to dole out a lot of uh, credits. Okay. And yet, I mean, it's not that flexible when it comes to paying back and you're not able to pay back. It goes with a lot of strengths attached and you have to some way pay or maybe surrender one or two things within your territory. And uh, people have brought that up. But the other side of the argument is that, well, that money was given for investment. I mean, they gave it to African leaders to invest in the economies. But so they should be able to pay back. So if they are not paying back, then they have been irresponsible with the, the usage of the money. Mm. And so African leaders are supposed to be blamed for this um, debt trap that people speak of. So it's, it's, it's a two-way um, argument. And so far, as I'm saying, much depends on the great powers and how they, 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 they act. One other factor is the population, the general population, the youthful population. Currently, African youth are becoming very, very knowledgeable. Mm -hmm. They have access to plethora of information. Now I speak to you, I'm getting, you, you get my worldview, I'm getting your worldview. Mm -hmm. That is how technology is helping African youth get access to information so fast. So they know a lot of what is happening. During the Cold War, they didn't know much. 
It was about government, government affairs. Currently, it is it's, it's nothing about that. It's the, the public know what is happening. And so each power that wants to engage Africa must do so very honestly because people know, the people are reading in between the lines to see yeah. what is a Trojan horse against what is genuine help. Mm-hmm. Well, so kind of on that, where who or who would you say is doing things right right now? Like which countries in Africa are providing stability where people will want to invest? Maybe there's less of the outside influence, but you know, you're not worried about terrorist groups moving in. Um, they're kind of self-sustaining. So what areas are are the the highlights right now? Okay. So um some countries, despite this um, rise in terrorism and insecurity, have been doing very well. Mm. In West Africa, Cote d'Ivoire, uh, Ivory Coast, Ghana, um, Nigeria. Nigeria, despite the chaos in the north, the south, I mean, the country is generally doing well. Okay. Cameroon, Gabon. Um, you talk of Liberia, after a long civil war. The country is back on track. They are really trying to revive themselves and come out of the 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 lost years. They are trying to get it back. Um, Sierra Leone is a very poor country, but they are also having a democracy, so it is okay. They are, I mean, they are facing challenges, but it's fine. Mm. Uh, so, despite the economic challenges, many countries are doing well. In Southern Africa, you find Namibia, Botswana, particularly. There is one of the stars in Africa. Okay. Um, you find Angola after a long civil war that ended in 2002. Angola is currently doing fantastic. Hmm. They, they, they are exporting more oil. They are trying to bridge the gap between the rural areas and the urban communities. That is the, the, the dichotomy, rural-urban dichotomy. That even affects some advanced countries. Um, Angola is trying to, 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 to bridge that. Um, South Africa is one country that is doing, doing quite well, but with so much challenges, political and corruption and murder cases and all that, um, South Africa is becoming a basket case. But mm. I think that it, there is some hope. Uh, you go to Zimbabwe after the long years of Robert Mugabe and the coup and other things, it is also coming back slowly. It particularly has a lot of lithium. And so far it is mm. saying that Value must be added within before it steps out of the of, of the borders, and I think that's a good sign. In um, Mozambique, Mozambique also faced a long civil war as a formal uh, as as a former um, colony of Portugal. It faced a long civil war, but now there's stability, and they are doing well. They found much gas in the north, Cabo Delgado. Despite the uh, terrorism that is happening, the country is likely doing well. You go to Kenya. Kenya is a, a star in East Africa. And Tanzania, these two countries, Kenya and Tanzania, two bordering states. Yeah. In East Africa, they are doing fantastic there. But um, above Kenya is Somalia. Now, Somalia isn't, Somalia uh, domestically isn't doing, uh, isn't the best. But things have started changing in that they are fighting terrorism better. Yeah. And the economy is growing. Now, if I show you some of the pictures of Mogadishu, you would wonder that you are looking at a Canadian city. Oh, really? Seriously. And yes, and, and they are raising a, a building, I mean, apartment buildings and other things for uh, people to live in and all things like that. But largely, the situation is not the best hmm. because in the rural communities, Al-Shabaab is so strong and ISIS 
franchises are roaming the, the, the area. Now, uh, you talk of uh, Ethiopia. Ethiopia is one of the countries that is growing very fast. Despite its domestic problems, it is growing very fast. It is a landlord country, and it is growing very fast. I was just going to say, so a lot of this, though, is because of the population is becoming more educated. They're kind of voting or at least uh, trying to form you know, some sort of government that isn't constantly fighting with groups or something. Like People are finally making this push to say, hey, we want to be a part of the world and stabilize and use our resources and, and things to better our life. Yeah. So education is making a lot of impact mm. in that people are uh, choosing their own path. Mm -hmm. You don't have to depend on politics to survive. Politics of the some um, clans of, um, I mean, some underdog to a politician to survive. People are, young people are setting up businesses and making lives for themselves. And because of the use of internet, be able to advertise their products on Facebook um, and things like that to sell out there. Uh, you might use myself as an example. My presence on LinkedIn has exposed me so much. Uh, yeah. Before I spoke to you, I had I was a guest lecturer in a UK university, uh, that is the University of Lincoln, just this afternoon uh, uh, via uh, Microsoft Teams. And it was it, it is nice. That exposure is, is there. So it's like African youth are finding their path and, I mean, investing in themselves in order to uh, uh, push their countries. And in all, it has benefited. Businesses are growing, but there are still conflicts. For instance, yeah. Ethiopia still, is still having civil conflicts. Mm -hmm. And so these are some of the things. Now let's look at Sudan currently. It's it's a whole, uh, I mean, a whole problem there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know what? Um, I find it interesting that you're, you're talking about self-determination and someone having agency over their own life. And that's, that's a huge thread, no matter whether you're talking geopolitics or you're talking uh, an individual drug user in Canada and whether they're going to get off drugs and turn their life around. Uh, conversations I've had with people in every uh, industry and every profession, all the issues always seem to come down to agency, self-determination, whether a person has control of, over their own life or somebody else is giving them handouts or telling them what to do because that person then has some kind of control over you it, it, to some degree. So uh, I just find that to be an interesting kind of uh, through line for everything that I, I talk about on these shows. Um, one thing that we talked about, and I won't keep you too, too much longer, uh, just let me know if you do have to go, um, but was just on Somalia and then and uh, Ethiopia and that kind of region of the world. And this was just from our prior conversation. It was uh, just about some of the, the, the I'd say, the culture from there. We have a huge Somalian population in Edmonton. And one of the things I've heard in conversations was for the males in those groups that they seem to have difficulty when they come to a new country uh, adjusting and uh, kind of integrating into society. Or for some reason, we see the females from the groups tend to kind of flourish and take off a little bit better. So can you, and you had a good uh, way of explaining it, but could you kind of explain it on here, uh, just why that might be the case? Mm. Um, this issue about the Ethiopian um, Somalian women being industrious is something that is known. 
and mm. uh, by researchers, uh, by analysts. I've met several analysts who tell you how industrious Ethiopian women are. Now, the psychology that I have developed for this is, is very simple. You know, Ethiopia, uh, uh, Somalia, I keep saying Ethiopia, sorry about that, but mm. Somalia is, uh, is a patriarchal society. Okay. Somalia is a patriarchal society. It's mostly, they are mostly Islam and patriarchal. And with uh, patriarchy, it means that the men decide everything. Now, the women, it doesn't mean that women are just objects, but this is to say women uh, have limited rules in society. And so what happens is that the men and Somalians uh, are mostly um, grouped in clans. Mm -hmm. They have several clans in Somalia. So if you heard about the uh, Somalian civil war, it was about a, a clan civil war. That is different clans coming together to fight against each other to push their interests. Mm -hmm. Now, these clans are having male leaders, patriarchy, same way. And these male leaders, as a young um, Somali, as you grow up, you are initiated into this patriarchy where, I mean, the male is dominant. Now, clans, being in a clan also means that being able to keep secrets, being able to act in a particular way that is determined by the clan's codes of conduct and things like that. Mm -hmm. They do not take instructions from outside. And so their loyalty among themselves is unquestionable. Mm -hmm. So if you would like to get into, so even in the diaspora, when you find yourself in the diaspora, you can't just enter within. So what I think is that when they are given their necessary respect, they tend to conform. But where that, that um, loyalty turns into crime, it becomes very difficult to overcome. Yeah. That is, if you are a security agency and you want to tackle that, it becomes very difficult because they are extremely loyal to themselves. And you find clan members in Somalia traveling all the way to maybe Edmonton. Mm -hmm. And when they get there, they know themselves that we belong to the same clan. And that loyalty is transposed or comes to Edmonton. Yeah. So when it is in good society or when yeah, it's for a good cause, it is good because they will help each other. That is Africa. Community is everything about Africa. In Africa, you don't send your uh, aged um, parent to the home to live there. No. When the, when the aged, when, when your, your parents age, you have to take care of them. My mother is, is, is currently growing. And when she's aged, we, are, we have to take care of her. Mm -hmm. Perhaps she will have to live with one of my sisters or we have to get someone who takes care of her in her home. You know, but we don't take the person. So that is community. So okay. um, when that value, those values are brought to the global north, where, wherever they find themselves. However, when the women get themselves in the global north, they don't get to be controlled by their men because the laws in such countries will not allow you to do that. Mm -hmm. So with that freedom, their industry and their um, 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 agility is unleashed and so they will do better. Yeah. And that is that is the, that is how these things work. Yeah. So what I think is that the loyalty among the men, when it is for a good cause, it is good for themselves wherever they find. But when it's for a bad cause, like crime, it's really a serious matter. Yeah. Well, hey, I I couldn't have put it any better than that. <laughs> so um, we're just kind of coming up to the end of our time here. I want to make sure that you get a chance to say how people can follow you and your work. So. Where can people follow you? You got any books or anything coming out soon? 
Right, right. Um, so I write um, a lot of papers. Mm-hmm. Um, I write summaries almost every day on LinkedIn. And my LinkedIn name is Fidel Amachi Ousu. The Amachi is A-M-A-K-Y-E. Mm-hmm. A-M-A-K-Y-E. So Fidel Amachi Ousu. And the Ousu is O-W-U-S-U. O-W-U-S-U. So Fidel Amachi Ousu, when you, when, you, when you visit LinkedIn, and you, you go in there, you can follow me. And I'm very, very much active there. And I share my ideas. You can also, I mean, uh, you can't be always right about something. So if someone has an opinion, you can always share it uh, in the commentary. And yeah. I try my best to respond to commentaries and sometimes get to people's inbox to respectfully um, agree to disagree with them. Mm-hmm. And we, 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 we move on. And then um, that is the, that is where I, I have my most consequential post that is on LinkedIn. Okay. Um, I'm coming up with maybe a YouTube um, um, channel and things like that, but then that will be communicated on LinkedIn as and when they come on stream. Okay. But most importantly, I'm working assiduously on uh, my, my organization that is a consulting firm, uh, DevSec, that's the name of the consulting firm, and it's in the, it is in the, it's in the pipeline. We are organizing ourselves so that uh, we'll be able to render services. Young Africans, very much informed, rendering services to the world and we would like that uh, you engage us yeah <laughs> yeah i'll put a link up to linkedin uh, so people can get right directly to it and uh, i'll keep an eye out for uh all the other things but um yeah i want to say thanks for coming on we'll look to have you on again because there's so much to talk about uh and uh, yeah no it was a pleasure having you on here yeah uh, I'm, I'm very happy i think for this opportunity this is my first interview a radio interview outside my country. Oh, really? Um, growing up, I had a lot of yes, I had a lot of radio interviews, but this radio um, interview is the best outside my country, and 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 I'm impressed. And thank you so much for the opportunity.